As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at BTERacing.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss the Chevette, the Gremlin, and at least one T-1000. One popular T-1000. Big Jed, how are you? Luke, I am well. I am well. Thank you for asking. I'm really excited about the show today and, um, you know, just uh, ready to get to it. As am I. I think we've got a good one for the audience today. Some uh, some good topics, but I think there's only one way to start. Jed, we are, as we record, 72-ish hours removed from that plucky upstart Alabama team. Winning the national championship. Now, listeners of the podcast, Jed, realize, longtime listeners certainly realize, that not only is the state of Alabama undefeated in the Great American All-State Challenge, undefeated, never lost, but they also have the greatest college football program of all time. In fact, according to one of our highly subjective hosts, Alabama's basically better at just about everything than the other 49 states in the union. 
Jed, in all seriousness, I'll be fair here. If my Salukis were to forget winning the national championship, if my Salukis were to make a run to the Sweet 16, we would dedicate an entire show to that. So I feel like I've got to give you your time. Congratulations. Let's hear all about it. Well, Luke, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, this kind of, this Alabama thing, winning everything is kind of getting old. I mean, you know, winning at the races and winning at national championship football venues and now the basketball team is probably the best in the country no offense to gonzaga and and the other good teams up there but we're five and oh in the sec now and you know on a, a hot streak uh, 10 and 3 finally found our groove it, you know it just it's beating a dead horse luke uh the football team is the greatest ever uh, coach is the greatest ever and just uh, displayed the greatest display of offense in the history of the sport and that is not what Alabama is traditionally known for. So not only are we better at everything, we adapt better than anyone else. So, so it's a pretty exciting time to be, uh, be an Alabama fan. All kidding aside, um, really, really cool to watch them win. Um, definitely what I love to do is watch Alabama win at anything. But uh, the football team is really special this year. Um, I know all that bragging I just did was made people puke and – I apologize. That's really not who I am. I'm respectful of our opponents. Ohio State's a legendary program, and Notre Dame is, and we got by them in the playoffs. It was a wonderful year, and great to be a Bama fan. Just really cool to watch the maturation, I guess, of their offense, how this team has come from a traditionally strong defensive team to a now mediocre defense and incredible offense, and seeing that uh, that has taken them back to the championship level where they they try to stay so good stuff congrats to all my alabama crimson tide loving friends and if we have more than one or two listeners out there that love the crimson tide congrats to you too and ohio state was a, a worthy opponent got away from them tough game for them uh, they were beat up impacted by covid and injuries and alabama took advantage of it so that's just how those things work sometimes Next year probably be a challenging year, losing a lot of great players and coaches, but that's next year. So for right now, roll tide. Yeah, I'm sure you won't sign any any new recruits at all. Um, it, <laughs> I, I empathize, Jed. Like, I mean, it's got to – it sounds like it's it's just – it's getting boring to win so damn much. Well, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you, you probably have experienced this on the racetrack before, but – I don't win at many things that I do. So, uh, it, no, it's not boring at all. It's uh, it's wonderful, and I love it. And I'm hoping for more just as soon as basketball kicks back up over the weekend and loving watching my tide run up and down the floor and uh, on the courts and get some wins there too. I, I actually think we've got an NCAA tournament team this year, and that's pretty exciting because we don't get many of them on the round ball. Yeah, that is. I mean, we won't spend too much time here, but obviously hoops is my thing. You guys you have a, do have a solid club this year. Just housed Kentucky earlier this week, right? Yeah, at Rupp Arena, which is not their best team, obviously. So uh, that wasn't as big a challenge as it has been over the past decade or so. But uh, still, anytime you beat Kentucky and their home court, it feels pretty good when you're Alabama anyway. Got Nate Oates running the show, up-tempo offense, Nate Oates winning, Nate Oates calling out Coach K. You got all kind of fun. 
Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. I, I wish Nate hadn't have done that, but um, you know, in all reality, what he said, he was right. And those of you that aren't basketball fans, just go with me on that one. <laughs> all right, fun show on tap today. Uh, what we're going to get into, we're calling this the bug debates. Uh, Bud McCarty, friend of the program, uh, jumped on Facebook, which isn't really his thing, right? Not not necessarily. <clears throat> social media guy bug mccarty as you as you might guess if you've uh, if you've met bug bug has thrown out a series i guess this was back closer to uh, the holiday time throughout a series of uh, facebook posts basically asking for racers opinions on a variety of things and base in essence trying to determine what would be the ultimate race format some of these topics we've debated, we've bounced back and forth here on the show before. Some of them are new. Even the ones that we've discussed in the past, I feel like there's just a little bit different atmosphere around things as we head into 2021. So I don't mind rehashing them. I think it's great conversation. We're going we're gonna to pull up some of our favorite um, comments from these threads and obviously weigh in with some thoughts of our own. And then we'll close the show out with a, a very fun um, suggestion from a listener. Listener question, name your top five. Uh, we'll kind of leave it dangling at that until the end of the show, but uh, it's going to be a good time. So we'll get to all that. But first, this is where you're supposed to say PJ North. Oh, PJ <laughs> North! The bug debates, Jed. I think we, I think we uh, preempted this. We'll just dive right in. We've got, uh, we got a handful of uh, posts, questions to get to. We dissect one by one. Let's just jump right in. Yeah, Luke. Sounds really good. So, obviously, the bug debates is not self-explanatory, but it, it we can discuss what that means here shortly. Bug, for those of you that are friends with him, as you mentioned, not a guy that's typically on social media uh, blasting, saying, you know, giving his opinion or any of those other things. But I guess, Luke, towards the middle, maybe end of December, all of a sudden, Bug is quite the poster. And he's posting questions, topics about race formats and not only formats, but decisions that you would make in certain scenarios. Um, basically indicating, not indicating anymore, it looks somewhat official other than a flyer that, you know, he's jumping in, throwing his hat into the race promoting arena and going to be a part of uh, a, a different type of format at a facility in November. And the way it looks, it appears as though he's going to Florida and he's certainly asking opinions of people to see how they prefer decisions be made and race formats be handled. So um, as you mentioned, some of these things we've talked about at length here and some of the things that he's questioning or asking about, we have not. So 
So it's uh, it's going to be interesting to to look at just a handful of things here that he's asking about and see what some of the opinions are. But definitely the most interesting part to me is that Bug is a very highly respected racer and a guy that supports races at a very high level, not just McCarty's on his tabs. I mean, Bug helps a lot of people at the races and he is um, definitely a guy that you like to see rolling the gates when you are putting on a race. And now, for all intents and purposes, it looks like he's going to put um, put himself on the other side of that. So it is your uh, your opinion, your, your takeaway from this is that the bug debates could be laying the foundation for bug promotions. Yeah, I'm not real sure what do you call it, but bug promotions would be a great name. A phenomenal name. I'll say this just to, for those of you that perhaps are not familiar with Bug McCarty, and I, I think that's probably a, a fairly small percentage of our listenership. Bug's been at this for a long time, right? As long as I can remember, uh, multiple cars now is is basically the, the patriarch of what may be quickly becoming like the first family of bracket racing. Um, his wife, Carol, uh, daughter, Carolyn, son, Trip, all competing all at a high level. They're at the vast majority of big dollar bracket races, really from coast to coast. I mean, their show has been on the road pretty steady, uh, really for a long time, but specifically the last couple of years. And I will just say, if it if it does transition into um, promotership, like I think Bug's got a leg up on just about anyone because at least to my knowledge, it's got a impeccable reputation. I mean, to your point, uh, has been a has been a part, whether it is a, a sponsor, supporter, participant in the vast majority of you know the races that we talk about here. And I'll just say on a on a personal level, from what I have seen, not only racing with Bug, but and his family, but also um, having them as a customer at a handful of the races that that we've promoted. Um, you just couldn't ask for the better, like he is the avatar customer, at least for me, because he comes in uh, multiple cars, never has seemingly never has an issue with much of anything, like just kind of goes along with the flow, does his thing. Sometimes he wins, sometimes he loses. Like he's the guy that you don't hear from except to say, hey man, thanks for putting this on. Good job. And if there is ever an issue, it comes in the form of constructive criticism, like he handles everything the way that I would like to think I would handle it as a racer. And I've seen that both from the other lane and from the tower. So I just think from that standpoint, if that's where he's going with this, like I, regardless of the race structure, which is obviously what we're going to get into here, I just have this feeling that Bug would be great in that role. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, he would be very successful. Uh, again, a guy that's never going to think with his wallet. Um, he He's never done that. Even, even from a promotion standpoint where I've been part of the promotion effort and he's been a sponsor still, he's that same guy you just talked about. He doesn't ask for anything special. He don't want special parking. He's like, you know, just look straight me like everybody else and everything will be just fine. I don't, I don't need anything extra glad to help and just uh, use whatever I'm offering the right way. And, and we're all good. So, um, bug, Bugs a guy that uh, definitely is going to be successful at this for all of those reasons and more. He's a you know just a good businessman and and knows 
how you treat people is very important. And I think he, if he does choose to, to be the actual promoter and the face of an event, um, the, the respect level for him and the appreciation for him, um, widespread is going to result in a lot of people wanting to, to give him support too. So look forward to seeing it happen. All right. So with that as the baseline, Bug did roll out some, at times, uh, opinions and really just kind of reached out to the racing community like, hey, what what do you want to see? What is the ultimate race structure? And had some really thought-provoking um, posts that generated a great deal of discussion. That's kind of the, the basis of today's show. So, Jed, we're not necessarily going in chronological order, but we've got about five posts that we're going to tackle here. Why don't you lead us off? Okay, so this is definitely wasn't his first post, but it was the one that, that made our list first. And Bug's question basically was, if a race is shortened from un unfortunate circumstances, when is it considered a complete race? A uh, racer understands that it goes back to completion of a round, so you wouldn't, he's saying, I understand it not ending in the middle of a round, but say the race is canceled and the buyback round hasn't been completed and they fall back to the first round or end of the first round, do they split the end of the first round or do they just cancel the day altogether? At what point do you just split advertised winner payout or do you tally up the rest of the payout as advertised on the flyer and split the total? So basically he's saying, uh, how far does the race have to be run before it's considered complete? And then do you just say, all right, our, our guaranteed money that we list for the winner, runner-up, and semis, is that what you pay? Or do you pay out everything that you would have paid out, round money and all? Yeah, so to me, this is a little bit layered and situational because I think if it's early in a multi-day event, I feel like the promoters can and should have the liberty to roll over combined days, try to run two races in one day, if that is you know, possible given car counts. Where I think this really becomes an issue is a complete washout or the last day of an event. Is, is that fair? Oh, sure. Okay. At that point, my take on this, and, and AJ Ash actually weighed in as a response here, and I, I think he's spot on, basically saying that the buyback round has to be completed. Races split up by the last completed round. Uh, so if you're halfway through round four, it reverts back to round three and essentially all payout from that point on is divided among the racers. I think if you don't get through round one and or a buyback round, assuming that it's a buyback race, which the 99% of, uh, of the races that we're talking about are, um, if you don't get to that point, I think that you just have to refund the entry money for that day. Once you complete that buyback round and you've got X number of races left, racers left, then I think it's fair to split the remaining purse amongst those racers. Yeah, absolutely, Luke. The basically how you could phrase that is the the first round that the the number of racers won't change is where you would say the race is complete. So. In this case, where you'd have round one and a re-entry round or a buyback round. So the re-entry round would either have to be complete and or the if there was a, just a buyback round, the second round would have to be complete. 
because at that point the the number of entries doesn't change. It obviously just gets cut in half by running the round. So, um, and again, as I said, I talked about Bug not making decisions with his wallet. He would just make the decision that was best for the racers and the the quality of the event. Um, you have to somewhat consider the finances when you make this decision. Now, um, all of us would prefer to be, um, I guess, independently wealthy to where none of that mattered. And you just pay everybody everything you can pay them and don't worry about how it affects you. But uh, that's not reality. Reality is the race is built off of a certain um, financial plan, basically saying if we get this many entries and this percentage of buybacks, there would be a profit at the end of the day because these are my expenses, which you have no matter what. If the if the race gets rained out in the middle of the first round, you've got the day's expenses. You're paying those no matter what. So I think you have to you have to take into account the financial impact and completing the buyback round is a very important part of that because that is what you built the race on. If, there's no way anybody did a race format without considering how that would end up at the end of the day. So I think it's, I think that's fair that uh, a promoter would need to get the buyback round completed, whether it was a re-entry round or just buying right back in the second round. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I just think that a lot of the, the debate over this, and really a lot of, uh, probably a lot of the debate period in, in the majority of the things that we're going to talk about today could be averted with, I don't even want to say better planning, but more transparency between race promoters and racers. Like whatever the decision is on this should be on the flyer and should be adhered to. Because inevitably, if there's any question, the way that this is going to be perceived is if the promoter has a big car count and it rains and rather than refunding everyone for the day, they pay the purse, then that's because like they made more money that way. Right. And flip it. If it's a low car count and they're getting hung on the purse, then the promoter comes out better to just refund the money. Right. So yeah. perception on the racers is always like, Hey, the, the promoter, the race director is taking advantage of this situation, whether that's accurate or not. All of that could be averted and there really couldn't be any complaint if it's just laid out, like here's how we're going to do it in the event of rain, right? Uh, purses split to the last round of completion, assuming that the re-entry round is done. Uh, if race is drained out prior to the re-entry round, then we give, and maybe even spell out because that can get a, in a gray area too. If you've got a multi-day race with a weekend entry fee, like you can't refund the single day entry fee for that last day. Right. That's not really fair to the promoter, but what is the fair number? So maybe actually detailing that on the flyer, I, I think would take a lot of the, the consternation out of this. Jed, I've got an interesting situation along these lines that I'll throw to you. So I think by and large, like we're in agreement on the way that this typically should be structured. We had a situation at the summer door car shootout. I believe it was the last year that we did it. So here's the deal. You're down to three cars. Uh, you know, relatively large payout race. Let's just to keep the numbers clean. This wasn't, I don't think the numbers in our race, but let's say it's $5,000 to win. 
it's $1,500 to the runner up and it's $1,000 to the one semi. Okay, so you have $7,500 in the pot. They run the round at five or six. The buy run at three has been determined and now it rains and we cannot complete the race. Do those three split the 7,500 three ways even? Or should the racer that is guaranteed a spot in the final get a bigger cut? And how do you navigate that? Well, I don't think you can do anything but split it three ways, Luke. And the reason is it's still advantageous over what runner-up pays. If there wasn't already a, a split, I guess, determined, whatever whatever part of that he was guaranteed, which would be runner-up. Now, that could be a different story. Maybe he gets runner-up money if that was already a split that had been predetermined and they knew what they were racing for. Otherwise, if they were waiting to the final, if, if he chose the route that I would take had there not been a split prior, and then I'm at three cars, and I say, you know, I, guys, I appreciate you asking, but I'd rather wait around and, and you guys do something among yourselves. Um, if that wasn't the case, all he was really guaranteed was runner up money. And I would assume that his share of that 7,500 was more than what runner up paid guaranteed. So I think the only fair way to do it would be, uh, would be split it three ways, unless they had already decided that runner up gets three grand and maybe the fair thing to do would be allow him to get his three grand and the other two split what's left. I think it's an interesting debate because you could absolutely like there's that's a that's a reasonable argument to say okay there's 7500 in the pot there's three cars left everybody gets 2500 bucks. I think it's also a reasonable argument for the racer on the buy run to say like look I was guaranteed a spot in the final it's 5000 to win 6500 to runner up. I think I'm entitled to half of that 6500 which is 3250. Right. And keep in mind, like this is the numbers on a five grander. Imagine this is a 50 grander, right? Those numbers 10x everything instead of being a $750 discrepancy there. It's a $7,500 discrepancy. Um, yeah. I, I just, I had never thought about that prior to our event. And I, it was a unique one because I could absolutely see both sides of that argument. Like if I was on the buy at three, um, I could see absolutely making the argument like, no, wait, like I'm guaranteed in the final. Like I'm not the, the, the chances of getting the thousand dollars for semi, like that's not me. I'm getting I'm <laughs> out of the final. So I could see either side of that argument. Yeah, I can too. I definitely can see either side of it, but I think you got to somehow get to the most rational decision and reasonable decision. And I don't know, feel like the scenario I laid out would be that, but again, Rational and reasonable is all relative to, to who's presenting their argument. So. All right. So next question. And this one's, this one's multi-layered. And I think you ask a hundred racers and you might get a hundred different opinions on this by runs. Um, Bug asks, it seems. Well, well that Luke, hang on just a second, because there was a second part to that. And I just want to make sure everybody's clear on, on our opinion there that, you know, once you've completed the buyback round, whatever that is, you can tell how the car count is going to fall and you know where you start paying racers. So I think you, it's the fair way to do that is take the, where the car count's going to fall, figure out how the round money would have played out each round until the guaranteed money starts coming into play. And every penny of that is put in the complete person split equally. And obviously AJ and, and Scott Lemon chimed in on, 
uh, what Bug was asking there, and I think they feel the same way. But just want to make sure everybody was clear on on what we felt, how we felt that should be handled. Yeah, one hundred percent, and that's a good point too because. You can't just blindly look at the race flyer and assume that it is a, a full payout. Like assume, say, that the race is going to fall to 64, 32, 16, 8, right? Where you would have the max number of, of uh, potential round winners, potential round losers getting paid in that round. Sure. Because that discrepancy can be pretty significant, particularly on these bigger races. Between that and then if the race were to actually fall, say, um, 40, 20, 10, 5, right? That round money paid out is significantly less. And I agree with you, the fair way to do that, because at that point, you know how many cars are left and how it's going to break down. So you would just, you know, kind of uh, um, run the race in theory, getting to those numbers, multiply them by the payout, and you've got what would have been paid out had the race gone to fruition. Yeah, and we've We've been told several times over the years, Steve and I both, you know, car count, car count falls to nine or whatever. And they say, man, you save some money there with it not falling to 16 or it falls to three. And they say you save some money not paying both semis. Well, no, you didn't save money because you just paid it. You paid more the round previous. Right. So when you pay round money, um, you're not saving money by it not falling even. You're or, or falling at a, a, you know, a round number like a, a complete round would have 16, eight, four, because you paid it all in the round prior. So, right. Yeah. That argument misconception in the, the olden days, so to speak, when racers were structured, like you got paid for quarter finalist, eighth finalist, 16th finalist, but nowadays you get paid per round. So it doesn't really impact the payout as much as you would think. Right. And sometimes yeah. you would mention. Yeah. All right. So by runs <clears throat> bugs, Runs. It seems that all the big money races give the previous day winner the potential first round buy run the following day. He bug asks, why is it that they just won 20 grand, 20 grand, right? You'd think they want the buy first round? Of course not. They'd rather have it at three cars like everyone else. Let's go back to basics. Let the first cars to lanes one and two flip for it. Uh, being nobody goes to the lanes when they're called anyway would be a great way to get some cars to the front of the lane. Next day, instead of calling uh, the races where door cars are called first, Bugs says the next day, let's call dragsters to lanes first, um, et cetera. Uh, and then asks about ladders. Like this gets pretty ladder, pretty layered as we get into it. So let's start with the first thing, like that first round by run. Um, I don't know that I've questioned this in years because it is just the way that it's been really for the the duration of my big money career. Like the vast majority of events that I've been to, the previous day winner has the first round by the next day. I don't know that it makes a lot of sense. Like I don't really have any good argument for why we do that. Do you have a good argument for that? No, uh, we do it at our races. And, you know, I think the kind of the reason it started that way was for simplicity um right. just you know you didn't have to go random and you felt like you know in the races that steve and i put on they're double entry allowed and you can drive the same car twice so it's a somewhat fair assumption that the person that won the the previous day was double entry or even if they wasn't after they won they're going to be a double entry so you know we felt like that was kind of a reward for them they can come up early in the round or whenever they want to come up with one and the other one gets to sit on the back. But there is no, there is no good reason why 
we give that to them. I, it probably should be random. I'm not a big fan of of the first four cars in lanes one and two and flipping for it. Um, but I, I do feel like random where everyone in the list of tech cards has a fair opportunity might be the better way to do that. I'll tell you this. I, I agree. Um, I, I, we didn't at the races that we put on, we did a complete random drawing for first round. I just felt better about it. I think it's more fair. And I just uh, kind of to the point of a lot of the, the comments on this thread of bugs was, Look, then the winner the day before, like they're having a good enough weekend and they've got plenty of hits down the track. Like they don't need that first round by run. Yeah. And if it go well, they just won whatever it was the night before. Like they can buy back. I'm fine with that. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm all for awarding someone that that perhaps, um, you know, lost first round, bought back, lost second round the day before, doesn't have a lot of hits at the track. And maybe that one run is the the catalyst to getting the, the data that they need or the confidence that they need. Like, I think that's probably good for business. Um, I'm with you. If you're going to do a, a random draw among the first X to the lanes, I'll just say this for, and, and again, we're all um, biased by our own experiences. And as we've talked about before, I think that we all have a tendency to romanticize the quote unquote simpler days. And I think back to, to the way that I grew up racing, but I still, to this day, outside of, I guess it's a bit more complicated for the staging lane personnel, but this is the way that pairings worked at Texas Raceway back in the day. And I've never, I shouldn't say never, I have rarely been to any event that does this and I don't think I've ever been to a, a quote unquote big dollar event that does this. I can't remember one anyway, but at Texas Raceway, we had six lanes and the personnel at the front lanes had a stack of cards that probably had um, 10 sets of one through six. And how the buy run was determined was the first card that was drawn was the lane that the buy run come out of. And the second card drawn was how many deep. So they had 36, the first 36 cars to the lanes had the potential to get a buy run. And then from then on, like you, the first car drawn went to the right lane. The second car drawn went to the left lane. So you had no idea who you were going to run. It was completely random. Um, if you wanted to avoid a friend, a family member, you just stacked in the same lane with a car between you because it could go back to back. But if you got a car between you, you could not run each other unless that car got pulled out for the buy run, right? Um, and it was random. You had to you had to be able to go down both lanes. There was no lane choice. Like it, first car drawn went to the right. And I just I guess like there's a, a little bit more complexity. Like I said on behalf of the staging lane personnel, I just by and large felt like it was a f more fair way to do it across the line, not just by runs but pairings. And it's just not done. So any pushback to that? I kind of like that. No, I like it a lot. Um, you know, again can be somewhat complicated um, especially as you're visiting facilities where the the person in the staging lanes has never done that before or, or you know they've kind of got a system they use so um, I think it's very fair but could cause a, maybe a round or two anyway or I guess it's really only first round that, that you do that but everybody needs Luke what they have at Prescott Raceway. They need the wheel. The wheel. Uh, the wheel of by runs. Now, I still don't understand it. I watched it, and then they even trained me on it. <laughs> but I have no idea how they get that by run. But what well, was fair? 
you spin that sucker and it tells you who gets it. Like every car in the field is on the wheel somehow represented or was it? You know, I don't think so. It was like, uh, it was like the lanes, each lane was represented and then maybe a certain number of cars back is where it cut off. But it was really weird and, and odd, but it was fair. I think I've told this before. And, and let me, before I get to this, let me say this, the, the protocol that I detailed that the Texas Raceway did years ago, it, there's, I could see two pitfalls in it. Number one, it is dependent on your staging lane personnel. It's also dependent on having enough room. The thing about Kennedale back in the day was you would get paired and you would go to like the ready line and there would be three cars deep at the ready line. So there's plenty of time to see, okay, that's who I'm running. That's what their dialing is, right? So you kind of have to have that set up too. You have to have someone really knowledgeable and willing to take charge at the head of staging to run all of that. And even at that, I do think it just opens the event up to um, the perception of favoritism, right? Like there is someone determining these pairings. Yeah. And just always going to be a feeling like that dude made me run that guy and that that wasn't fair so i guess to, just for simplicity's sake like take the right lane and left lane race who you're beside like there's a part of me that doesn't like that because i do feel like you can kind of pick opponents but in this day and age <laughs> be careful what you wish for right I, there's really anything to that so back to the wheel i think i've mentioned this on the podcast before as i've said i i grew up at texas raceway right well texas raceway had rules so I couldn't race at Texas Raceway when I was 14, like I wanted to. Yeah. Took me to Outlaw Track that will remain nameless. A lot of the people listening know exactly where I'm talking about, right? Well, said Outlaw Track had a wheel. And it had, there was three staging lanes. And so I think that there were um, <clears throat> three spots for each lane on the wheel, right? So nine spots on the wheel, plus one more for each lane that said bye. So you'd have one, two, three, one, two, three, by one, two, three, by two, three, right? You know what I mean? So you basically had a one in 12 chance of spinning the by in your lane, which was, it sounds great in theory, right? The problem was the wheel was out of balance. And it didn't take long to realize <laughs> that I would venture to say four out of five times that you spun the wheel, it would land on by three. So if there was an odd, it was an absolute race crash in the pits to get to the front of lane three. It's the spot to be. <laughs> Something on the oh my gosh. By three. Um, all right. So a lot of different could go. With Luke, before you, before I forget this, will you do me a favor and put ready line, the ready line in shout outs? In the shout -outs. It's been a while since you heard the ready line. <laughs> it's been a while since I heard the ready line and I love it. The ready uh, and the the ready line feels like it was the same area era as drivers meeting. <laughs> yeah, on the dodo, right? Yeah, yeah. I want a ready line where I race. <laughs> <laughs> I need a ready line. <laughs> so on the buy run discussion, uh, if folks want to want to go look at Bugs page, uh, Sugar had uh, Shane Car by the way had a lot of input there and, and some thoughts and can't say that, uh, that I disagree with him, Luke. I, I don't know if you were going to discuss that or not. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different places we can go with this. What, 
I think we're basically in agreement. It feels like the fairest way to to determine a first round buy is a is a random draw across the entire field. Um, I, I think we're at least in agreement there. We may get some pushback. Uh, going from there on, the the common method is um, best reaction time gets the buy. That's another thing that uh, I guess I'm fine with. Like it's it's something that you just hardly question because we've done it that way for so long. But in reality, like. Were you trying to be perfect? Like, did, you you probably got in the round, but do we? I don't. I, it's probably as fair a way to, to determine se sequential buy runs as any. I don't guess I have a problem with it. It's probably more fair to reward that than it is to say go random every round. Um, so I don't. I don't really have a problem with that. You? No, no. I think that's. I think that's fair. And you know, there's uh, again a lot of opinions on that, but you you get into when you start talking about buy runs you get into more of this discussion luke talking about carrying the buy and uh you we had a pre-show discussion about that where i race uh, carrying the buy was normal i mean you you earned a buy run you kept it until you used it or you got beat but yeah seems like that's not a popular opinion or a popular race format well, just to clarify, like the idea of carrying a buy, if that's a foreign concept, it's very common, really in big dollar bracket racing across the board, but specifically, I think kind of got started in the Southeast. The idea of carrying the buy is, let's say that you have a perfect light in round three. So you have the potential buy run in round four. There's an even number of cars you win. You would quote unquote carry the buy run and you would be sitting on the buy again in round five, regardless of your round four reaction time, right? It carries until you either use it, take the buy run or lose it by losing the round. Um, and I would say the, the vast majority of, of big dollar bracket races follow that format, that you, you carry the buy until you either get the buy run or lose the round. Um, and I, I, this is another thing that I guess I've been so, um, submerged in that culture that I've not really questioned it. And I think you could make a pretty valid argument here either way. On one hand, if you're saying the best reaction time of the last round should get the buy run, then the best reaction time of the last round should get the buy run. So if you were set out for the buy in round four and you had to race somebody and you won, but you're 17 on the tree and somebody else was 002, then the 002 should get the buy. Like I get that argument, right? By the same token, I also understand the argument of saying like look i was perfect in round three that earned me the buy run for round four but there wasn't a buy run in round four so i had to race somebody and i won why do why is it that the round before the the racer that was perfect got a buy run got it rewarded for that perfect light and i don't so i see the argument for carrying as well yeah i do too uh I like carrying. Again, I, I did state that it doesn't seem to be a popular uh, race format or, or popular structure, but for me and what I like to see, I, I like that. I like the buy to carry. I, I think it's it leaves less opportunity for something to go wrong. Uh, having promoted races with big car counts and people that aren't always where they can hear well the, when the buy run's announced, the more times you have to announce a buy run, the more likely things are to get screwed up when there's a large car count. I can assure you of that. So I like the carry. I think it's the simplest way. And I, I could debate the fairness of it till the cows come home. I, 
think you earned it. And until you get to use it, it's yours. You actually bring up a really good point from a promoter standpoint, Jed, because I think there, when you're, when you're considering these things, as you're putting a race together, there are, there are two things to really weigh in your mind and, and you're bringing up both of them. It's fairness to the race. Like what is the fairest way to do this? And then if there is a, if that's kind of a coin flip, simplicity, right? What is the, the easiest way to make sure that everyone's on the same page? And I think here you make a pretty good argument of like, Hey, the buy doesn't change until the buy changes. Yeah. Um, Shane did bring up, Shane was pretty vocal in a lot of things. So Shane Carr responding to this post, uh, he did bring up a, an interesting scenario that is, that is common and I guess could be averted if you didn't have the, the carrying the buy run rule in place. And I've seen this specifically at, at the, the really big mega purse events. But let's say, for example, there are 14 cars remaining. Everybody knows there's 14 cars remaining, but there is one driver sitting on a buy which doesn't do him any good, him or, her, him or her, any good at 14 cars. But they know that that win light would advance them to the semifinals. And that can absolutely affect the split discussion. And I say that this really comes into play at the, the huge money races because like, that's the round of the split discussion. And that driver can not only approach the split a little bit differently, can basically uh, dictate the split to some extent because they are in that position that's averted. If at that point, we all know that the buy run at seven cars is going to go to whoever has the best light here. So we can't plan for that in advance. Like that would make that split discussion a little bit simpler. I think. Why do you mention that if, if it fell at 14, that number, that, that 14 number and that, uh, that somebody that has the potential buy run next round could influence or, or dominate the split discussion. Luke, have you ever seen anything like that happen? The most notorious example we we did here at length, uh, that would have been the 15 million, right? Yes, yes. Uh, exactly how it played out. So, and good point. Was in that situation, uh, 14 cars sitting on the potential buy. And Kenny's decision, which again, like I get either argument, but we, at least I think we, I, certainly I said at the time, like I completely support his decision. Like I, I, I'm not saying that I would do the same thing in the same spot, um, but I don't think he was wrong. Kenny said, no, no split. I'm going to take my chances. And what that meant for everyone was that now, instead of getting maybe $10,000 to lose that round, the losers of that round got like three grand. What it meant that, so, so the, the seven losers that round were upset with Kenny Underwood, right? Which is fair, <laughs> but also on Kenny's end, he basically said, look, I'm not making this a decision between $3,000 and $10,000. I know that by not splitting right now, I'm leaving more money in the purse should I get to four cars. And if we get to four cars at that point, keep in mind, like the money is not going to be split at all field wide until four if he wins. So on Kenny's end, this isn't a round that is $3,000 to $10,000. This is a round that if he loses, he's getting three grand. And if he wins, he's getting like 60, 70 grand. It is one round that he committed to staging to that says, like, look, if my wind light comes on, it's a 60 plus thousand dollar wind light. And that, regardless of what you think of the decision, that takes some stones. Yeah. Yes, it does. And uh, Shane had some other thoughts there. Really don't need to get into um, just for time's sake. But um, our old buddy, Michael Beard, 
He's a race promoter, very successful race promoter and racer. Tried to come in and apply logic to a, a, an internet debate, which Michael knows better than that, but he did anyway. But he had some really good good points as well. And, you know, from somebody that's put on some very successful events, I think he, uh, he's very credible. So somebody that, that we should listen to. And he, he had some really good points. So invite everybody to go uh, go read that discussion. It's good stuff. All right, so we're moving on to the next one? I think so, Luke. So the next one is easy for me at this point in my life, um, but I've been on both sides. I've been somebody that would have taken both options or, or either option at any point in my life. So the question is, so you, had you rather race for X, whatever the big money purse is, with 300 plus entries with a reasonable entry fee, and only have one race per day with buybacks and doubles allowed, or would you race for same amount of money with 150 entries, which is half, um, no buybacks, everyone has one shot with a, a little bit stiffer entry fee. Obviously the entry fee has to be stiffer if you're getting half the crowd and have a shootout after each day's race. Uh, so, Luke, I'll go ahead. I'll let you let you discuss. I think I know where you're going here for sure, but um, let you discuss your opinion here. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I think that we sh we share the same opinion, Jed. And I will say, I don't. I think we're in the minority. I personally would much rather deal with less cars, and I'm willing to pay a premium to do that. Um, it's just you get runs closer together. the The day the race day is done earlier. Uh, if I want to compete in the shootout races, I can. If I want to go to dinner with friends, I can. Um, I like having that freedom uh, and and am willing to pay a premium for it. Like I just, events go smoother, the, the less cars that are there. Um, and I guess I've reached a point in my life where there was a time when you've told me like, we could just race 24 hours a day, like the whole time we're there. Hell yeah, sign me up. I'm not there anymore. Right. Like I just like I just assume run my race. I, I don't mind being done at dark. Like that's cool with me. I guess I'm getting old, um, but that's that's where I come in. Yeah, I agree completely at this point in my life. My next birthday will be my 50th. So give me the 150 car race or 150 entry race where everybody's got one shot. I like that. Uh, we'll, we'll forget about buybacks, doubles, whatever. Um, a little bit stiffer entry fee, but we're racing for good money. And, you know, I'll, I. I know that you need to just get by a round or two here and things are going to start whittling down in a hurry. And the shootout after each day's race is somewhat misleading because that really is most likely only going to be, if you got a three-day race, it's only going to be two shootouts. It's going to be the Friday, Saturday night shootout and Sunday night. Nobody's sticking around for a shootout. So you, you couldn't, you couldn't put heavy money on something like that, hoping that people would stick around. So uh, you give me five races for a little bit stiffer entry fee and the most amount of people that's going to be racing in it, it's 150 and everybody's got one shot. Yeah, I like that. But certainly there was a point in my life where I needed the entry fee to be as low as I could possibly get it because I felt like I was going to win. You could put 300 or 3,000 cars there. It really didn't matter. It was just going to take me longer to beat them all and get my money. But these days, not so confident. Definitely like steak and want to get the race over with and go eat. <laughs> I will say this, uh, and, and this comes from a bit of a personal standpoint on the, on the promoter side. 
our race was a little bit different than what Bug laid out. We did a 150 car max, uh, but we did have one round of buybacks. And there haven't been a lot of races like that, but I would say um, by and large, um, they just haven't been well supported. And our race was like that too. It, it kind of, so I, I smile when I see that the general consensus on this post was exactly what we said and saying like, yeah, I'll, I'll play, I'll pay the premium to race half the cars, right? Like that's more my speed when push comes to shove and we all vote with our wallet. Those races haven't been supported in the past by and large, like our, our exclusive 150 lasted two years. And there could be a number of reasons for that. Like it's not just this format, right? But I've seen this format tried a handful of times. And with the possible exception, I know New Media does something like this that seems to have been well-received. But I kind of get the impression that whatever the Domino's put on at New Media is going to be well-received. So I don't know if that's necessarily the, the, the bar to measure things like this by. Um, but by and large, that race structure hasn't necessarily worked. And now, it may be different now. Like, uh, this is all cyclic. And I feel like the emergence of the mega race over the course of the last three, four years, where the vast majority of the truly elite races that you can go to are four, five, six, seven hundred entries that are just this marathon. Um, and there are races that like that, right? Obviously, being able to do that decreases the entry fee a lot in relationship to the purse because there's just so many cars. But I do think a lot of racers have soured on just the marathon that that becomes and perhaps a market for a race, just like bugs laying out here, 150 car capped, no buyback shootouts each day. Perhaps now the market would support that better than any time in the past. Yeah. I think that's well said and I agree totally. So on to the next topic, Luke. Absolutely. I think this one's yours. All right. In today's world of mega buck bracket racing, would you rather race for half the winnings if you knew that there was an electronics guru on site that had knowledge to know what they were looking for or uh, race for the advertised purse, take your chances that everyone's on a level playing field? Maybe the promoters could hire someone with no experience in racing at all. So the idea being someone completely objective. Uh, thoughts? Yeah, um, again, I'm not part of the, the, the cheater talk. Uh, I am certain that there is someone somewhere or some people somewhere doing it, uh, trying to cheat, but I don't think anyone winning on a big stage or winning consistently in anything we would consider mega buck bracket racing is doing anything outside the lines. Um, have they found a gray area somewhere that, that helps them? Yeah, but just doing something completely illegal. I just don't believe it's happening, Luke. So I would much rather race for the advertised purse and take my chances. Everyone's on a level playing field. Okay. My answer to Bug's question, and I agree with everything that you said, Jed, I do feel like the, the motivation is there probably more, definitely more than it's ever been. I mean, we're, we're literally running races that pay a million dollars to win. Right. And, and the technology is available. So perhaps I am naive to think that it doesn't go on. Or, or, I think it would be naive to think that it cannot go on. But I do agree with you on the premise that I don't believe there's anyone winning at a consistent level that is in the wrong. Like I, and I don't think if I'm wrong in that, I certainly don't believe that 
cheating is widespread. With that said, my answer to Bug's question, would you rather have this or that? My answer is yes. Because <laughs> I don't think it has to be an either or thing. Like I, I've kind of beat the drum on this for a couple of years and I, I'm shocked that no one has really taken the reins. Why doesn't some budding entrepreneur develop like a tech service and create, whether it's one guy or girl or a group of, I don't know, three or four like tech officials that is its own privately owned company. And you just sell that service to every big dollar race promoter there is because every big dollar race promoter would hire you to come in and assure a level playing field. Or I think more importantly, let allow every entrant, every competitor to feel as though you are ensuring a level playing field to just know that, hey, somebody's watching. Because I think that would make us all feel better about it, particularly if we felt like whoever was watching like knew what they were looking for and, and knew what they were doing. Now, I, don't dis I don't disagree with that, Luke. Um, however, if it needs to be someone that's not, that doesn't have any kind of horse in the race or stake in the game or a tie to someone. As much as I love and appreciate and respect Cody Harger. And I don't think Cody would do anything out of bounds. You know, he was the guy that was uh, checking his hero's car, basically, Johnny Ezel. You know, he, he had to check Johnny. And I heard people say, well, he's never going to find anything wrong with Ezel's car. Well, there's nothing wrong with Ezel's car. So nobody's ever going to find anything wrong with it. But I think there was still a, a a percentage of people out there that perceived that to be an unlosable situation for Ezel because one of his best friends was was checking his car for cheating devices. No, you're a hundred percent right. I agree with you on on Cody in in general, but your point I think is that from the outside perception is reality. Yes. That yes. would be the trick not only as a race promoter as to who you would employ in this capacity, but also like if you're starting that business, like you have to be uh, at least you have to be seen as that objective voice. And I do think that that's hard to find and probably rare. Um, uh, one response to, to this thread was, uh, was from AJ and I think it was spot on as well. Uh, yeah. First off, you'll never find anything tearing cars down in the staging lanes. You need to monitor run sheets. And if you question a car, it needs to be impounded overnight and tore down completely. Wheels, tires removed, center section, everything, basically everything that rotates. Otherwise you're wasting your time. These devices aren't gonna be hidden anywhere that you can find them in the staging lanes in five minutes. Perhaps in the lanes, you can see something that warrants impounding the car, but the car in question's got to be impounded. That's the only way that you can really police it and see what's going on. And it's another thing that I've beat the drum on for years. Like if you are convinced that something's going on, like you've got to get to the bottom of it, A, for, for to do one or two things, to either condemn the guilty and figure out exactly what they've done and how they've done it so that we know what we're looking for in the future so that you can explain it to the other racers or to clear their name. Like you've got to come to a conclusion one way or another. And I don't think that you do that by unplugging a sensor or, you know, a quick teardown in the lanes.
Yeah, I agree. And, and as you said, AJ spot on there. And you're talking about a, a, a former race director of a major bracket series. So AJ knows what he's talking about and what he's alluding to there for those that, that maybe don't understand why he would say what he said is the run sheets will start to tell the story by if a racer's 60 foot has moved 8, 10, 12, 15 thou, yet the 330s are extremely consistent. They're they're doing things like taking too much finish line. Um, you know, if your car does slip a tire a little bit, you're typically going to have more mile per hour. Well, when your car, if you've got something on your car to make up for that and catch back up, you know, your mile per hour is going to be moving around a little bit. Uh, or it wouldn't move around as much doing those things as it would if you were slipping a tire and spraying to catch back up or anything along those lines. So the run sheets, somebody that knows what they're looking at on run sheets can at least have reasonable cause to look into someone's race car on a very deep level. So AJ nailed that one for sure. Next question. Let's see here. Next question. Should tech cards be sold after first round begins or keep selling until the round ends? I've got some thoughts here, but I'd love to hear yours, Luke. Well, I was going to throw it to you because I know we had this conversation not too long ago. So I think I know where you stand on this, but I, I, I want to hear you articulate it. Yeah, so I think um, it's, it's yes and no on that. So I, my thoughts are that you as a race promoter set the maximum allow of entry, allowance of entries or tech cards that you're going to accept from a racer and you know in a race like what steve and i do we allow two we allow you to double enter so if a racer only buys one and we see that from time to time our buyback and our single day entry in certain races of ours is very similar so we have racers quite often that Enter one time, they win first round where that's the only opportunity you can buy back. Everybody comes to the track with the finances thinking that, you know, they could possibly have to buy back. So they brought the money. They'll go get them a second tech card and decide, well, I didn't have to buy back. So I'm just going to take another shot with another entry, see if I can get two entries into round number two. As long as they do not exceed the allowable number of entries and there should be one set prior to the race, I think it's okay. However, in a format that just says, buy as many as you want in round one, you can only get two into round number two, but you can take as many shots as you want to allow that to, uh, or get that opportunity for that to happen. Oh my God. I've been a part of that, Luke, and it, it's, it makes me never wanna go again to the facility it's a legendary place and I, uh, I i just completely turned off by that free-for-all of buying tech cards until you get two entries into round number two i think you should allow them to buy a certain number say this is all you can get and you've got you know till the end of round one to get those but after that no you, you can't keep buying them all day it's funny you bring this up because the two examples that I can think of on either end of the extreme, both actually come from the same racetrack. 
over uh, a, a pretty, I guess, wide range of years. But it's it's Beach Bend Raceway Park, my self-admitted like favorite racetrack. It's my favorite place to go, right? So years ago, and for the longest time, at their marquee event, the Ten Tuck Series, which was the old school race, like the the race format was essentially what Bug outlined in the in the 150, but without the cap on cars. It was a single entry. You could double if you had two different cars. Was the only way that you could double. There was no buybacks, and it was a like $200 entry per day, 10 grand to win. And uh, starting like fourth round, they would have a, a second chance race, which forever was $2,000 to win. And then in later years was 5,000. But the rule there in the big bucks race was they played the national anthem right before the start of first round. You not only could you not buy a tech card prior to the start of the national anthem, you could not turn in your tech card. I'm sorry. You could, not only could you not buy a tech card after the playing of the national anthem, you could not turn it in. If you did not have your tech card submitted to the tower before the end of the national anthem, you were not racing, period. So there was no chance to buy additional entries, right? And yeah. and like they stuck to it. I, I watched several times racers who were there, who made time trials, who bought an entry early in the day, forgot to take it to the tower, like never turned in their tech card. They didn't race, right? They stuck to it. Now the same racetrack, um, now, with you know the latest iteration of what used to be Ten Tuck, the they call it the the Ten Gs at BG. Um, there is no limit. You can buy as many entries as you want. You can continue buying entries until first round is over. And I have seen firsthand, Jed, what you're talking about. Like I I watched a couple of notable racers go down the track first round at least five times, trying to get an entry or two <laughs> into round two. So. I think either extreme is flawed. And to your point, I think the answer to this is really simple. I don't like the idea of not selling tech cards after first round begins for a variety of reasons. A, I have on multiple occasions pulled into a facility during first round, right? Like I would, and, and I would like to race. Um, and I don't, I don't think that you want to necessarily discourage that racer. I've also, this is probably a different discussion. Like I have had car issues, worked on my car all through first round, missed it paid the entry and the buyback to run in round two or the re-entry round, right? Which is allowed at most tracks. Like I say, probably a different discussion. So I don't want to discourage that because I feel like that's, uh, that's um, penalizing someone that doesn't necessarily just had a bad enough day as it is for whatever, yeah. right? Um, and at the same time, I, I don't like where it just gets out of hand where, oh, if you lost, well, just go give them another 150 and try again, right? Um, and, and the, the first round that never ends. So I think the, the fix is exactly what you talked about. Like you can buy an entry, you can buy a tech card anytime up to the end of first round, but you cannot go down the track more than twice in a round or more than once in a round, whatever that, that, that you limit that sure. and for multi-entry races. Like I really like the format of saying no driver or car can go down the track more than twice in any round. Like to me, that's kind of the happy medium. Yeah. And, and the race that I, I talked about, how I was so disgusted with the format and just made me never want to go back. There was literally people driving back into the staging lanes late in the round with their helmet on and their, whatever their support person was, wife, friend, buddy, whatever, they would be riding up with the golf cart with a fuel jug. 
so we could fuel it back up real quick in the lanes. Well, I get there's scenarios where that happens in the races and you might have a problem. You don't come strapped in with your helmet on in the back of the lanes and your friend right up put fuel in it. You didn't come from the pits. You uh, you came right back off the racetrack and somebody's standing there waiting to buy you another tech card and oh my goodness, it was it was awful. So not a fan of that, Luke. Agreed. So next one. Um, I'm probably not supposed to read this, but I will because uh, I want to I want to get your take on it. Uh, basically, questioning what should be considered a new entry. Now, this is uh, this a little bit messed up with the way that it was uh, put on the sheet here where I can't read it completely. But basically saying what is a new entry? What should be called a new entry? And um, questioning if a car or driver has been down the track and it's time for a new entry time trial. Um, they're not a new entry. So what do you consider, Luke, a new entry? Yeah, this is this is a little bit tricky. Um, and I think it's uh, same deal. Like it, it's just got to be established in advance. I say it's tricky because it's it's easy. It's easy to it's easily manipulated and taken advantage of by racers. Right. If you say um, no new entry time trials, but you get an entry if you are uh, if the car or the driver say hasn't been down the track together well in that case if there's no time trials on day number last jed what's going to stop me from buying an entry to run your car you buying an entry to run my car so that we both basically get a time trial right even though we've been there all week um so i think and and the flip side of that is say there's no time trials, no exceptions, then that's going to um, disencourage anyone that may be raced at their local track Saturday from coming to this big dollar race on Sunday because they know they're going to be thrown right to the Wolves first round with no data whatsoever. So what's the happy median? In my mind, it is uh, not only having the policy of saying if the car or the driver has not been down the track, no time trials. It's one thing to have the policy. You have to police it. And that can get tricky too, right? Like you have to be paying attention and you have to be willing to tell a racer, no, man, you can't, you can't make this run, right? Yeah. I think ultimately that's the answer. Do you have a better solution? Well, this is fairly simple for me. You know, at our event, if the car has been down the track, we don't care if the driver's been down the track because the, the driver might, you know, have to settle for something that hasn't even been on a racetrack all weekend. He might have had someone bring him one Saturday night. So if the car has been down the track, then it's not a new entry. We don't care how many drivers you want to throw at it. That's a better rule now that you say that. That makes sense. If the yeah, so if the driver's been down the track, well that's fine as long as the car hasn't. So and especially foot braking, you you know, or any any class, big top bulb, whatever, the car deserves a run, even if the driver's been double entered all weekend and something else. So the reason we don't do it with, um, you know, we don't allow a a driver switch into a car that's been down the track is when you got four or 500 cars at a race loop, guys can switch cars for a time run and switch right back and you'd never know it. I mean, you just, you couldn't keep up with that. So if the car has been down the racetrack for us, it is not a new entry. We don't care who's driving. That's fair. All right. um, Last one. This is an interesting one. 
go a lot of different ways with this. Doug <laughs> says there should at least be a bounce house cars, don't you think? So this is basically the the elephant in the room that that a lot of people don't like to talk about, at least publicly. Bugs basically admitting the fact like there are house cars, but <laughs> be an award for taking them out, right? Thoughts. Well. Well, the thoughts are, if you knew who the house cars were, they would get run out of the racetrack uh, anyway. I mean, there's just speculation about house cars and who is and who isn't or whatever. But if they were willing to announce, <laughs> okay, these are the house cars today, um, I don't think they'd ever make it <laughs> to the starting line. So uh, that the rest of that's really a non-issue. I, I, don't, I don't think you'll ever know who the house cars are. So that's, I think this one was done in fun. Um, but if there's a promoter out there with house cars and they're willing, <laughs> willing to announce who they are, I think that opens us up for a lot, for several great shows. Could you imagine, Hey, here's my $50,000 race. Here's the 20 cars that didn't have to pay the entry fee, but I, as the promoter, I'm getting a cut of what they win. Here's their names. But if you whip them, I'm going to pay you. I don't see that flying. <laughs> <laughs> No, probably not. I mean, we can get to the larger discussion on, on house cars in general, and I think we've had this discussion before. Like, I, I guess to each his own because I do I, – I have somewhat mixed emotions on this because, again, dating back to where I grew up, right, um, the track owner's wife at that time raced with us, and she was a very good racer, and she earned every round that she ever won, obviously. But she got so much negative pushback, particularly when she would have success. Oh, she's got tower power. You know, I mean, the, the, the typical lines, right? Yeah. I think was ever fair to her, but it's also unavoidable, right? Like that, that perception is going to be there. So I want to be clear when there is a house car, right? Which again is basically the promoter, the track owner, whatever, basically puts someone in the race. And my definition of house car would be, this is someone that, that didn't pay their entry fee in return for the race director getting some cut of what they win, right? The, the, the race director is basically playing the casino and this is the, the, the shark at the table planted, right? Um, I think that the, the perception that that racer has any advantage is largely incorrect like you could argue the psychological advantage particularly at a big money race like they didn't have to pay the entry fee but there's nothing once we line up like there's no reason that that racer should beat me any more than if he had paid his entry fee or she had paid her entry fee right like it doesn't affect the outcome on the race i don't think not monumentally with that it's a really bad look right and we've both been to races where it's obvious right and, and some several promoters have really changed their tact on this like from a promotion standpoint, I have really taken, I, the, when we promoted races, I took a really hard line on this. I, uh, not only, much to my wife's chagrin, like not only would I not let, allow her to compete in our races, she had to beg me and the, the, our family members had to beg me for like my sister-in-law, my father-in-law to compete. And they did. And they paid every dime of their entry fee. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a, I, I don't even necessarily have a problem with promoters saying like, hey, like, I'm going to let these people in for free, but they're going to keep whatever they win. Like, that's nobody's business. But I didn't even want that perception, right? Like, if you came to this race, you paid what's on the flyer, period. 
so that there is no even perception or hint of that favoritism, which again, I don't think is typically rightfully aimed, but I just don't want that cloud surrounding an event that I'm involved with. Yep, I agree 100%, Luke. That's uh, definitely the promoter's decision who they allow to race and, and for what entry fee they do it for. But as long as they don't have stake in the game or, or potential winnings coming from that racer, then I wouldn't consider that a house car. House car to me is someone that's giving the promoter a cut of their winnings for trading for entry fees, buybacks, or basically just clearing the tab. And I don't agree with that whatsoever. So, um, good discussion uh, from a very unlikely source. Our buddy Bug McCarty, I, I never envisioned him being a guy that would create so much discussion on the Sports and Drag Racing podcast, but we are glad he did and looking forward to seeing what old Bugs got up his sleeve. I'm sure it will be really good and he'll take all of the suggestions that his followers have uh, listed on these, these uh, topics and make good decisions and put on a great race. So can't wait to see it play out. All right, let's turn the tables a little bit. Let's have a little fun. Not that this hasn't been fun and entertaining, but you know, these are, these are relatively serious discussions. We had a, we had a listener uh, respond, shouts to Joel Sandstrom. We can shout out Joel, right? Yeah, you just did. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't so need yes. The answer is yes, we can. <laughs> Joel asks, Luke and Jed, what are the top five active drag cars that you would love to drive? So top five cars in competition today that you would jump into in an instant. So I'll start, Luke. My, my top five. Here we go. Number seven. How are we doing? <laughs> Numbers. <laughs> this isn't typical. So are we gonna are we gonna count them down individually? Yeah, I think one just back and forth. Okay, sounds good. Number top five coming up, Jed. Number seven. <laughs> number seven out of my top five is Peter Biondo's '69 Camaro Stalker. Absolutely love that car. It is historic. It runs well, it leaves well, it's just a super nice piece, and I would love to turn it loose and make me a quarter-mile stretch in that baby. That car is sweet. Uh, I will add a footnote. That is now Frank Aragona's Camaro Stalker. Oh, my gosh. No, Pete got rid of it? it. Oh, my goodness. I'm sick. <laughs> Number seven, Pete Aragona's 69 Camaro Stalker. <laughs> for six on your time yes have a seven i'm sorry oh you know i need to go number six because you don't have a seventh okay my apologies Head and roll out number six in your top five yes mine my, my number six out of my top five is lucas walker's mustang now i love popping wheelies luke i love it but it brings a lot of pain to that red Nova with strut front end and a low, a oil pan sitting an inch and three quarter off the ground. And it just, it creates a lot of pain. I'm, I'm changing gears. I just changed them actually. Adam Davis did it for me just so I can take some oomph out of it. But I would like to get in something like Lucas Walker's car and turn that sucker loose with no care for it when it goes up or comes down. And I'd really like to ride a long wheelie in that one. 
Yeah, okay, you stole my thunder a little bit there. Um, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. No, you're not. So, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I actually took a page from your book here, Jed. I, I couldn't limit it. So I also have six in my top five. Uh, so we can go back and forth now. I, I assume just from the, the two quote unquote honorable mentions that you mentioned that you approached this the same way that I did. I limited my list to, to sportsman machines. I, I could have listed five pro stock cars, right? Yes. I did keep it to the sportsman ranks. I, I assume that that was the intent. Is that the same way that you took it? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I will, let me start off before I get to who is, what the cars that are included on my list. I'll start with the one that's not, that probably should be obvious. Um, my list does not include the buggy that Brad Plord wheels so expertly with six second zone and comp eliminator, not because it is not freaking awesome, because it is. It's not included because the question was cars that I would love to drive. I like to watch that car go down the racetrack, but I am scared to death for Brad. And I am scared to death. <laughs> to straddle that thing and turn it loose. I don't, I, I don't believe I could do it. And I come back to this point. I would like to think, Jed, that I am a, a solid racer. Like I am a good racer when it comes down to like, I can hit the tree. I can drive the finish line. I can get the car to that on. Like, I think I check most, if not all the boxes. I'm a good racer. I have never in my life claimed to be a good driver. There see there there is a different brad Blord can wheel that thing like it is nothing i i'm not gonna say that i couldn't do it but i have no desire to do it so that one doesn't appear on my list right good call so my top six number six for me and this one's got a qualifier actually most of mine have a qualifier i'm gonna say west may's buick regal not because it looks like it's that much fun. Like, I don't think it would jump over a, a, a bottle cap on the starting line. Like, in a door car, I want to do wheelies. And it goes 680s. Like, I've been 680 or faster 10,000 times in my life. It probably wouldn't give me a rush. The qualifier here is I've got to have Wes with me telling me what I'm going to run to the thousandth because I'm pretty sure he can. And I just want to see if that car is as good as I think it is. Or if Wes is as good as I think he is, like, I, I want to see if I can have anywhere near the success that Wes May has in that car, in that car, because that, in theory, is not the, the weapon that you would choose. Like, you're not going to go into the big dollar bracket racing world and say, well, I'm just going to go 680 something, right? Like, that's not the way that most of us would, would blueprint it out. And yet he makes it look really easy. So that one didn't quite make my top five, but on the list. <laughs> Very good stuff, and I love the the story with it too. It's it, good reasoning behind that, and who wouldn't want Wes riding with them? So and you could you I, I actually I'll I'll split that one. I would say Wes May's Regal or Jody Lang's Malibu Wagon, like for all the same reasons, right? You're not quote unquote supposed to win in that car, and they both make it look really easy. So I just yeah. want them for a day with them on my shoulder, saying, "Here's how you do it." <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Uh, what number are we on, Luke? I'm, I'm just confused right now. Okay, so in our top five, after we're 10 minutes in, and we are both now to number five in our top five. All right, so my number five would be Justin Lamb's Superstock uh, Cobalt. Um, really want to – I'm not a no-box guy. Uh, I like to swap feet or just let go on the top. 
but I'd like to chip that boy up one time and let go on the bottom. Looks like as the green's coming on is when you got to let go, but I guess you, you change the throw on the button and all that, and that changes when you let go. But that thing looks absolutely perfect and fun, and sounds like it's turning, I don't know, 88, 8,900 RPMs. So I would like to stretch that boy out in the quarter mile coming off of about 120-foot wheelie, and then that last 1,200 feet just be making noise really want to drive that car yeah I, I think a lot of super stock cars check that check those boxes jed but justin's car to your point like it just looks so perfect every run right yes controlled the, the wheel stand but fun and fast and singing uh i'll, I'll quick footnote and and i the the cars chassis wise are probably comparable uh, when I drove the, my only experience in anything remotely similar, um, Scotty Stillings let me drive his his uh, modified Superstocker years ago, uh, maybe at one divisional and one or two national events, and it it was like a the quote unquote bracket motor, which barely ran the index, but like your bracket modified motor is a wild piece, right? Uh, so it wasn't near as fast, wasn't necessarily quite the tool that Justin's car is. But here's how the situation went, because Scotty sent that car to Valdosta, Georgia, for me to drive in a points meet, and Scotty wasn't there. His dad brought it. And so Scotty's trying to tell me over the phone how to drive this thing. And he's like, look, in the water, if you can, like, try to keep it under, like, nine grand. And I'm looking at the phone going, dude that will not be a problem, right? We, we will keep it under nine grand in the water. And you think that, but what you don't realize is that the converter doesn't lock up till about 7,500. So it's on up there, right? <laughs> it's screaming. And it sounds to me like it should go two seconds under and it don't go two tenths under, right? Like I can't imagine a fast one. And so he has me, we're, we're trying to avoid heads ups because we're slow. So he has me shutting off at thousand foot each run. And, and the way that that thing sounds when it goes on the chip, like I think I was leaving at like 5,600 or something. Right. And like hitting a pretty aggressive spot. Like you said, you're, you're waiting on green. Like you're not, it's completely backwards of it, it's wild. Right. And that thing is just screaming. So I make my couple of time runs shutting off at thousand foot and uh, everything's good. And he calls and he's like, so what do you think? I go, man, we're, we're in good shape, but I got one problem. Okay. What's that? Man, when I get to 1,000 foot, like I would just assume home, hold the throttle pedal down with a broom handle so that I could start crawling out the window because it's way too buzzed up. And you're telling me that next time I stage, I got to go another 300 feet? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was over 10,000 when I would lift. And this was not a wicked up, like this was a quote unquote bracket modified motor. The RPMs are just insane. <laughs> so cool. Yes. That's what I would love about it. Right. All right. So uh, we're to number five on my end. Okay. So this is completely uh, bias and subjective, which I guess this entire list would be. My number five, and most people would say, like, you got free reign of anything. Why the hell would you pick a dragster? Right. Like, dragsters are boring. I am going to pick a dragster. And again, like, I'll you, I get on you because you have like 50 in your, in your top five. Like, not only go to six, but my, my, my first one was really Jody Lang and Westmay. My second one is also two separate cars, but it's the, the, the nitrous assisted top dragster. The two that I'll pinpoint 
J.B. Strasweg's car or John Biaggi's car. And they really go about it in different ways because Biaggi's car looks like fun, wild, like dangling left front, just going like it's a ride. J.B.'s car looks ultra controlled. And they're both just spraying the freaking house down to go like 620. I'm in. Like, one, that, that, that's fast, but it doesn't intimidate me. Like the Pro Charger thing probably doesn't intimidate me. I've actually made a run in one of those. The blower kind of intimidates me. Like that's a lot, right? It's just loud. Like the nitrous thing, I could get down with. And I realized like I may blow the hood scoop head, head high. That, that was a thing like 20 years ago. Probably not really a thing anymore, but that's kind of my recollection of Top Dragster. I think it would be cool to let that thing hit the tires, knowing that it's going like sub one second, 60 foot, and then give it the wiggle. <laughs> like, let's get it right now. I, I'm down. I think that'd be fun. Sign me up. I'm sure it'd be a good time if you like the long cars, but uh, surprisingly, no dragsters made it into my top seven, which is actually probably a top 30 when I get to my number one. But. <laughs> Uh, but I'm sure, yeah, uh, those, those are cool hot rods and would be a blast to strap into. So, number, four. number four on my list, Luke, is a car that people know far and wide. And uh, it would be with me in it, it'd probably be dialed like a 609 or something, which doesn't sound a whole lot of fun. But you can turn this thing loose. You, you can loosen up the front end and you know, they would need to pay you at the racetrack for what you do for the spectators. And that's John Siegel's wheelie wagon. Uh, this thing will absolutely go as far as you want it to go on the back tire, back bumper, whatever you hanging off the back. And I'm going to drive this car. Uh, you know, I, I, I put on this list cars that I might not really ever get to drive, but I would like to drive. I'm going to drive that car and I'm not going to stand it straight up, but I'm going to do me a wheelie and it's going to be a really good time. Again, I love to do wheelies, but I'm scared of them now because of what they do to my car. I don't really care what it does to Seagull's car. I'm going to do one. I'm going to one up you and break your heart. You have driven it. I have driven the wheelie wagon. Oh, man. It actually goes back so far with me. I drove that car in its previous uh, life. Like before it was really the wheelie wagon. Do you remember what color it was before it was its current brown? It was um, like, a, no, I don't. It was gold? I won, a, I think it was like $2,000 to win foot brake race at a Mockley Regional Raceway in the wheelie wagon before it was the wheelie wagon. And it was and god awful ugly green oh wow and i have since it became the wheelie wagon and i have stood it up um as actually uh it was one of my more memorable uh final rounds it was like the 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 little race quote-unquote little race at uh, west palm at one of the five days uh the little races were eighth mile and i was in the final in the wheelie wagon opposite brian folk in his dragster and from like probably fourth round on, B Folk was just like you on and on. I God, I want to make a run in that thing. It was standing up. It was doing what it does, right? And it was, and it's really good. I mean, it was really good. This is ten years ago. It's really good today. And B Folk, God, I want to drive that car. I want to make a run in that car. So in the final, B Folk got to make a run in that car. I drove his dragster, and he drove the wagon. So good times. That is good times. I'm I'm envious. I'm not jealous because 
jealousy has evil in it. I'm envious. I'm happy you got to do it, and I want to do it too. Are you sure you got that straight? I thought envy was one of the seven deadly sins. Oh, jealousy. Jealous means I don't like the fact that you have it, and I, I want it instead of you. Envious means I appreciate the fact that you have it, and I would like to have it too. That makes sense when you say it, but I, I, I want our listeners to fact check that. I, I'm not 100% sure you're right. Well, if I'm wrong, please don't tell me because I use that a lot with my, my younger employees and stuff. So, Number four on my list. I think it's been a race car even longer than the wheelie wagon. It's Tim Nicholson's super gas Camaro. Mm. Now, admittedly, when I get in this car, if I ever was to get in this car, I would stare at that third pedal on the left and go, what the hell do I do with this thing? know how I would administer a burnout. I have no idea how to stage. But if Tim would walk me through it, man, it looks like fun. <laughs> yeah, that one would be fun. And I will I will get to talk about something along those lines on my list. But anytime you're that active in the car um, from end to end, it's going to be a good time. So I'm with you there completely. Would love to drive that. This is not apples to apples at all. And it seems like every one of these, I get to tell a story. So uh, there may be three of you still listening, but I got another story. The only, only thing I can begin to, to go down this road, and, and I, believe me, I did not look near as foolish as I would trying to drive any stick shift race car, right? Because like, I'm not particularly good in a stick on the road, right? much less on the racetrack. <laughs> but Jed, this will resonate with you. A lot of our listeners probably won't be familiar with this car. <clears throat> Jackie Rogers talked me into driving his wheelie Chevy 2 at Bayleton Dragway one night. Before, this was old Bayleton before it got redone. And Jackie Rogers Chevy 2, it's actually, it's one of uh, Sonny Ray's old cars. Like it was a, a David Rampey, Sonny Ray is David Rampey's father-in-law. And uh, it's uh, like a 63 or 4 Chevy 2 mm-hmm. with a by God, all aluminum small block, like 434, heavy car, three speed, and just drags the bumper through the one-two shift every time. And it's old school, no trans brake, four-wheel line lock, leave it like 2,500 and just by God, do a wheelie. Well, this car, as, as you can just hear from what I'm saying, it, outside of the engine combination, extremely old school, right? So... I looked like, I mean, I drove this is probably five, six, seven years ago. I had been down the track plenty. You would not know it to sit on the hill at Bayleton and watch me try to drive this car the first couple of times that I did it. It's everything was so awkward, Jed. Like it's got, it's, there's a, the line lock to hold it in the water box is like down below the dash on the left. And then you have to shift twice in the water. So you do your burnout without a hand on the steering wheel, which feels really weird. Right. Usually I've either got the line locks on the shifter or the line locks on the steering wheel. Like you just hold on to something. Right. It felt so awkward. And then it's a four wheel line lock setup. So you've, you brake pressure is what holds it. And Jackie's telling me like, you got to mash the heck out of the brake pedal. Okay. I got it. Right. The first time I roll through, it won't hold it. Once I go on the two step, it takes me like two runs to get anything like that. remote. I couldn't do a burnout. I couldn't stay and do anything. This was an automatic, like this was nothing really that different from what I'm used to. And I looked like a complete fish out of water. 
Now, once I got it, it's the coolest thing ever, man. I t- it, at Baylorton at the time, on a time trial, you would leave and the reaction would come up one digit at a time. So it'd be like, oh, 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 you know, if it was perfect. Well, I turned loose the button the first time I got it right. And it said, oh, oh, and the scoreboards went out of view. And I'm like, well, hell, that was good. That was cool. And I mean, it's just, <laughs> I got completely right. And the thing it had, this is, this is typical Jackie too. It had, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating. If it had one water temperature gauge, it had six and one worked, but it was like, it'd been a race car. <laughs> so when a water temperature gauge quit, they just hung another one in there. So there's stuff all over this car that has no credence to anything. And if there was five switches, there was 50 and a half over half of them didn't do a thing. <laughs> the metal switches too. It was hot when you touched them everywhere. Toggle switches. Like what does all this do? I don't really know, but you just need these right here. Okay. I got it. I've been watching that car go down the track since the late eighties, Luke. And there was, there's been many a time, actually most of the time Jackie raced it, as you mentioned, it didn't have a trans brake. It was four wheel line lock. So you could leave in any gear. It was just a manual three, uh, three speed automatic. And so Jackie would leave in second when it was doing a bigger wheeling than he wanted to do. He'd just leave in second and just make a power glide out of it. So yeah, it was a very versatile car, especially considering the era in which it was most raced and most dominant. All right. That's enough of my story. Number three. So number three for me is Richard Duke's Chevy two. Now I don't want to race the car that goes anywhere between five eighty five and five ninety eight. Um, I want to race the one that goes five thirty one, maybe dip in the high twenties when uh, when everything's just right with the the brake lights shining and just as smooth as glass. Looks like glass. It's so slick and comfortable and nice. And I've sat in it and it it's just like you could just sit in there and just look at stuff for hours. It's so pretty and perfect. Uh, I want to drive that car, the the 529 to 531 version of it. Uh, unbelievable hot rod, just super nice and something that, you know, maybe one day I'll grow up and get to have something like that because it is impeccable. Well said. Yeah, that car is an absolute piece of engineering uh mag- magistry magistry was the word of oh yeah awesome race car um okay so my number three of my uh top six that maybe turned into eight or nine <laughs> it, the the i don't i don't think it's likely that i'll ever drive any of these cars this is the one that it just will never happen like it, it's and maybe that is the allure of it is that it's just completely off limits it's Dan Fletcher's checkmate just from the the history of the car. Like it's the winningest NHRA sportsman car ever. Uh, You could argue that it's the winningest drag car ever. And we've had that discussion before. There's a few that are, that are on that plane. Um, And it's just, it's a cool car and just knowing, but it's more for the, the history of that machine, what it's done, what it's been through all the different iterations, kind of watching Dan's career. And I will say it is off limits. Like that's the car. I don't think Dan lets his kids drive that car. Like no one drives old man Fletcher's car except Dan. And I don't think that that will ever change. As it shouldn't. Um, 
I would be scared to drive that car to the staging lanes, much less down the racetrack, because I know what it means to him and his family and, and his legacy. So um, if he told me to drive it, I would have to respectfully decline. But, uh, but definitely something legendary that would be cool to, to make a lap in. So, Luke, my next one is number two on the list. And I, in 1988, I was 17 years old. And my brother had a straight ship 69 Camaro. And he said, take this thing up there testing tune night and just go have some fun. I'm like, okay, I'm just by myself. Track was three and a half miles from home. So hauling it up there wasn't a big deal, even for a 17-year-old. He said, yeah, you know, make sure you put it in second to burn out. You can't burn out in, in first gears. You you can't come out of whatever gear you start in in a straight shift. So you just put it in second gear. And, and I was driving straight shifts since I was 11 years old. So being able to handle the clutch part of it and all that. But I, uh, I didn't anticipate what it was like to go 670s at 17 years old in a straight shift. And I did it. This thing was wild. It was a, it was quite a handful to drive, but you know, I'm 17. I'm fearless. Had no idea that it was a handful. I was just having a good time enjoying it. Fast forward to my number two would be Robbie Drone's 63 Corvette. Actually, no, it's a 65 Corvette Super Stocker straight shift car, high winding. A dream car for me is a is a mid sixties, early to mid sixties Corvette. Anyway, the fact that it's a straight shift, it's unbelievably beautiful. It runs well. I think it goes uh, maybe way into the nines or, or high eights. But swapping those gears, winding that engine up, and stretching out on a quarter mile would be an absolute dream. Now, that's a car I know I'll never get to drive, probably won't ever even get to sit in it. But number two on my list is a dream car for me, and that's Robbie Drone's uh, Super Stock Corvette. Sounds like we both have a desire to to wheel some amazing stick shift car, but I, I don't know that either of us would actually have the uh, the stones to do it. <laughs> I don't know that I would. How about that? I want to speak for you. <laughs> Just, oh, just I do it. I don't, I don't, man, that the embarrassment factor, like I, I know it's not like there's a chance that I'm going to screw this up. Like I'm not going to be good at this. So <laughs> that would be <laughs> factor for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd want my first pass to be in front of a bunch of people, but you give me about three to four runs in that thing. I wouldn't drive it as good as Robbie, but I would look like I knew what I was doing. I like it. All right. So my number two, um, you stole my thunder. It's uh, I like wheelies. And I don't think, I didn't, I guess maybe because of my history with it, I didn't think of the wheelie wagon, that that would have been on this list as well. Um, but I don't, outside of that, I can't think of a car that does a prettier wheelie consistently than Lucas Walker's Mustang. But once again, I have a qualifier. If I'm going to drive Lucas's Mustang, the sole purpose in me driving it, because I'm not going to drive it as well as Lucas, right? Maybe put a delay box in it. And I, I could do it some justice, right? I'm not going to hit the bottom like Lucas. If I'm going to drive it, the qualifier is that it's got to have the the pissed off, I just went red spray every round. <laughs> because, like, it does a nice wheelie on its own, but, like, the 
the stuff that you see that is made, you know, internet legends of that car is Lucas kicking it red and 20 feet into the run going, and just, I can just picture him mashing the button on the side of the steering wheel as hard as he can mash it. Right. (laughs) Just goes, it's like your breath. It's just the teeter down from the wheelie and it just drives right up under it. And I'll be completely honest, Jed. I don't know that I have the presence of mind to do that every run. So I want to run it in box and I want that on a timer where I don't have to think about it. It's just going to spray and get up every time. That's my qualifier. If I'm driving Lucas's car, we're spraying at mid wheelie and we are getting after it. That would be so much fun. I didn't even think about the spray part of it when I, when I talked about him on my list. Uh, yeah, I would really like to, I'd probably just, I'd like to hold the wheel, although the, the front tires would be way in the air. So holding the wheel wouldn't really be a big deal at the time, but I'd probably just let Lucas hit the spray. I'd just say, you just hit it whenever you feel like you need to. I'll point this thing straight. Hope for the best put that on remote control you handle that from the starting line i'll just ride (laughs) (laughs) yeah be a good time (laughs) all right luke here we are down to number one so my number one car that i would like to drive i know it was it's at least five to seven cars that i've seen but i can't imagine how long the list is even cars that i haven't seen i would want to drive them because anything Phil Unruh has ever built that has doors on it is absolutely incredible. It is trick. It is clean, straight, well-designed, well-built, fast. I mean, it's got it all. If you get anything that that man has had his hands on and helped build or just built himself, it's a special vehicle. So my number one active cars that I would like to drive is any active car that Phil Unruh has ever had ownership of at his place in the Midwest. That's a really good one because you could go a variety of ways with this from top sportsman to like back half bracket cars. Mm-hmm. And they are all unreal nice, super tricked out. And everyone has some ingenuity that, is just like so common sense like why the hell did i ever think of that right it's, yeah. it's always cool stuff yeah like like dome lights you know and and some really stupid fast trick stuff and you know like the, the dash lights light up when you open the door just because you know if it's a race car you know you want to see the you want to see the dash when you're getting in it you need to see the dash and you make it where like the dash lights up with the door open it's just crazy crazy neat trick stuff and then you know they're fast too and, and fun to look at so he had number one a uh i think it was a cobalt like bracket car that they could box no box and the delay box mount he had um adapted a like a gopro mount and made it his delay box mount where it was like this really slick positive locking click in like just like so simple but why didn't anybody else think about that like that's so much cleaner than anything i've ever done right yep so yep. i've seen that set up and uh, it, it's super cool that's a good number one so my number one podcast listeners uh this this will be a familiar one um and again a similar caveat to what i shared earlier um not a particularly good driver not sure that i could get this thing from a to b it looks really like to go as fast as Lester Johnson goes, 
this car looks like a piece of cake, but that may be as much due to Lester Johnston as anything. Not sure I could drive it, right? And, and if I'm going to drive it, like I've said before, my favorite version of Lester Johnson is dial the freaking minimum Lester Johnson. Like if I'm getting in this thing, we're dialing 610 Lester. We ain't messing around. Don't give me that 650 setup that would seem like that's faster than I've ever been. Like, let's forget about that. We're going to the, we're going to the pole. Johnson's top sportsman shoebox, an immaculate piece of machinery along the lines of, of some that you've mentioned, Jed, like in every trick and it does it in a unique way. I guess the pro charger stuff is becoming a little bit more popular among the door cars now, but he was the first to do it. The best to do it seems to have it figured out. Looks like it goes A to B with these probably not that easy to drive just because it's so freaking fast. Um, it's gotta be cool. Not sure I'd have the stones to do it. Not sure that I could navigate it, but Man, it looks like fun. Top of my list. <laughs> that is a great choice and definitely something that would be fun for a little while. But right after it took off from the starting line, I think the fun would end for me. So I would just want to burn out in it and I'd get it up close to the line, let you let you get in and finish that. But <laughs> uh, the burnout's about as far as I'd want to go. That's uh, That is a mean machine. A qualifier here that I think applies to most of these, it applies to me for top sportsman and super stock specifically, because like probably it's got to be the most fun you can have in a, in a sportsman race car. One of those two classes, I think. Right. Yeah. And I've told people on numerous occasions, and obviously the opportunity has never come to fruition largely for this reason. I would love to drive a car in either category as long as Jed you're paying the bill and Mark, producer Mark, you're footing the bill, right? You, I'm sorry, Jed's paying the bill, Mark's working on it. Because those <laughs> parts that don't interest me at all, because they both look really expensive and really labor intensive. And I'm not here for all that. But the A to B part, driving down the racetrack, that looks like fun. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think those, uh, those are good stipulations. Uh, if you're, if you're going to go crazy fast like that and have a good time, you definitely want to do it on... Uh, you couldn't do it on my money, but you definitely want to do it on someone's. And then, uh, because the valves need to be adjusted, like, you know, every 15 seconds and stuff on those things. So I, I would want producer Mark handling the, the maintenance too. And I just take pictures and sign hero cards. That would be a good time. And, and I, by the way, Luke, uh, everything on my list had doors. Uh, the one car without doors that, didn't make my list because it doesn't have doors, but the one car that I would drive without doors is Chet Dragon's buggy. Oh. I would, I'd like to make me a lick in Chet's, in Chet's buggy. I, I'd like to, to feel the feel of something so legendary and, and beloved as his buggy. To me, like you would just like to know for six seconds what it feels like to be Chet Dragon. <laughs> yeah yeah well said well said fun list luke that was good stuff and, and thanks to joel uh for for sending that in uh, uh that was a, a really good idea and something that that we obviously had a lot of fun with joel sandstrom um is a listener of the show and a guy that that gave us that uh that idea so we appreciate that very much luke i think that's gonna bring us to a close i don't know how many hours the show was it seemed like it was five or six so if you're still listening we definitely appreciate you uh, tuning in to the sportsman drag racing podcast we had a blast 
talking to you. But uh, that pretty much is the end. Um, definitely, if you have a top five or top seven that you want to put out to the world of active race cars that you'd like to drive, don't don't go back in time too far unless the car is still active. needs to be active. But send us your list. Tell us what you would like to get in and make laps in. We, we're interested to see what would be special to each of you guys and gals out there listening. So send that to us right there at the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page where you can message us as well. If you'd like to keep things private or make suggestions for show topics, tell us what we did right, tell us what we did wrong, what you want to hear more of, less of, whatever, unless it's me. And please don't hurt my feelings that bad. If you do know that uh, I had jealousy and envy backwards, please do not tell me. Don't send that in because I don't want to know that. Everybody I've ever told that to believed it. So let's just leave that alone. Other than that, Luke, it's uh, it's shout-out time. Shouts shouts to the the long-form format that we have adopted here. This was going to be a quick and easy show. Uh, We're pushing two hours, I think, in in recorded time. So uh, shouts to the the podcast medium for uh, long form. And shouts to those of you listeners that are still here uh, for for putting up with all of it. Shouts to Joel Sandstrom for uh, what turned out to be a very fun uh, topic. Along those lines, shouts not only to Lester Johnson, but to Lester Adkins as well. That's a throwback there. Uh, Shouts to Bug Promotions. Shouts to the Ready Line and the Drivers Meeting. Shouts to your Crimson Tide. Shouts to Nate Oates. Um, Shouts, this this goes back pre-show, and I'm going to have to qualify it a little bit. Shouts to Nut Dust and to Manscaped.com. We were... (laughs) Did that just happen? (laughs) Are we still recording? (laughs) We've made the executive decision to read we're looking for more advertising revenue. We're to the point that we feel like the Sportsman Drag podcast should begin to produce something tangible. And we were batting around ideas, you know, <laughs> when we're, we're past the, you know, like we're, we're very appreciative to the, to the BTEs, to the portraits of the world. Right. Um, but maybe it's time to expand our reach. And, and the conversation came up, um, nut dust, manscaped.com. We're, we're going to look into that. So don't be alarmed. If you, if you hear an ad, on a future episode we're going down that road shouts jackie rogers shout to chet dragon the one the only the man the myth the legend jed that's all i got i wonder if producer mark is laughing muted as hard as i'm laughing right now that is so good luke i never saw that coming that was excellent and certainly if there's a, a a representative of those companies um, this is the place you want to advertise because we will push those products very well, better than anybody you're using right now. I promise you. And we're, and, we're not above it. I mean, nut dust, manscaped.com. If you guys want to bag, bag for us. <laughs> I know there's only two or three people still listening, but man, they missed it. The rest of them just missed it. That was awesome. Oh guys, that wraps us up. Um, I don't even know what to say right now, but you got in the roll tide part of your shouts. So that was easily the best list of shouts you've ever had. And then when you ended it with <laughs> nut dust and manscape.com, Oh my God, you just killed that Luke. You can take a bow, my friend. That was special. Uh, guys, uh, if you, uh, 
if you do have the opportunity, whatever sponsors we have or had, please support them. Uh, anybody that's helped bring the show to you definitely deserves your uh, an opportunity to earn your business. So please reach out to them as often as you can. Uh, again, messages there on the, the Sports and Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page or put your list right out there for everybody to see. We would love to see that. If you do the Twitter, uh, you can tweet either Luke or myself or both of us right there. Uh, Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Um, that, uh, that was, uh, the best ending to the show that's ever been. And, um, again, if you know a representative of those companies or you are part of them, get with us. We're here to help. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you again real soon about more sportsman drag racing. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.